This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. The real rain that's come to wash all the scum off the streets. Today we'll be talking about the films of Martin Scorsese, most obviously The Irishman. I'm Mark Meyer, a man who would not take it anymore. I'm Erica Spires, and who's that knocking at my door? Hey, babe, I think it's Domino's. And I'm Brian Hurt. And as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to do a Scorsese podcast. Con, introduce yourself. Well, I should think up very quickly a Scorsese-related intro. Uh, I'm Colin Marshall. I will not sit through this podcast in silence. Very nice. The audience can't see, but we have cameras on, and you, you do have a little bit of that Andrew Garfield thing. You could play that part in silence. <laughs> I'll get in touch with Marty next time he's remaking his own movie. <laughs> I've wanted to do a podcast with Colin for a long time. I think you reviewed The Partially Examined Life in like 2012 or something ridiculous it's like that. It's been a minute since then, true. true. Yeah. And then you got me hooked up with Open Culture, where I've been writing for the last eight years. So what you're saying is... I was riffing from Goodfellas, but Mark, as far back as you can remember, you always wanted to do a Scorsese podcast. Your dream has come true. I wanted to do something with Colin. So yes, you had your own podcast back in the day, but you don't, what are you doing right now besides writing? Well, let's see. I do, as you say, there's writing, there's open culture, there's the Guardian Los Angeles Review of Books. I write essays on cities and culture and various related subjects for a great many publications, but I live in Seoul, Korea, which is where I am right now. And I do some podcasting here as well, and some writing in Korea. So I do have a bit of a bifurcated career right now. There's the English language side and the Korean language side, and there was sort of struggle for supremacy, one versus the other. But I'm an essayist, I guess, ultimately. Well, your English is excellent. Thank you very much. I work hard. I work hard on it. I was going to say, you do have a lovely lilt to your voice. Where are you <laughs> oh, from my. originally, or is it just a hybrid of a bunch of places? You know, it's funny. In in Korea, people often ask where I'm from, but that's natural because I'm a foreigner and everybody on the streets looks different than me. But in America, I lived in California and Washington. I got the same question even more often where I was from, so I can't win. West Coaster, I guess you could say. Wow, I feel like there's a European something going on. People ask if I'm from the Netherlands here in Korea very often. There's a heightened consciousness of Dutch culture here for whatever reason. But no one ever guesses American, or if they do, they're very old. Old people in Korea think everybody's American who's foreign. But <laughs> young people have a wider, they have a more global consciousness, you might say. All right, as a way of transitioning, I will ask you, Colin, what's the matter with you? <laughs> that was... No, I had a better transition because I thought he sounded like an Irishman. Aha. Uh-huh. Like legit, that was a bit I of a too. bit of a caught the leprechaun and got a little bit of you back. Well, and his name's Colin. I do have hey, Irish that. heritage somewhere if you go back far enough. And I, I'm a bit Italian as well, so I feel if you go far back at my family tree, I have some Scorsese relevant genetic material. Ah. So yes, I had noticed Colin had, had written most of the Scorsese related stuff at Open Culture, which Open Culture, the curator of this podcast, let's say specializes in that era of pop culture. <laughs> Things yes. that are too new, maybe not. This is I've had a lot of discussions with my brother-in-law who runs the site about this, but the kind of stuff that Scorsese is into, the Rolling Stones, classic rock, and going backward from there, and sort of this high culture thing, which is still pop culture. So this is an interesting area for us to delve into. We've done things on... Superhero movies in Star Wars recently and, you know, the things that are, are kind of getting the most buzz right now. But the Irishman just won a whole bunch of awards mm-hmm. or got nominated and presents this thing. Well, I know one of your talking points, Colin, was that we might see this as art films, but he goes out of his way to be 
entertaining at all moments, let's say that, using the score very aggressively? Is it just the passage of time that has made it see, and, and the fact that his movie is over three hours long <laughs> that makes us think of this as purely art house stuff now? You know, it's merely by comparison. The culture has shifted so far to the realm of the blockbuster that like these actually very popular appealing movies are now classified as something else. Would you consider The Irishman to be an art house movie yourself? What do you all think? No. It was too expensive to be an art house movie. It's $160 million, right? That's a, quite an art house. That's a big, a big house, I would say. <laughs> I see what Mark is saying about it feeling specialized in some way and feels like it's made for the Oscars. I think that's a bit different than an art house film, but it definitely has a feel of something that's made to be special. And it doesn't care if it alienates a big swath of its potential viewership for the sake of its own artistic merits. I don't know this, but I assume Scorsese... Now I'm struggling on how to say his name, Mark. You got in my head. I think in the movie Singles, there was a throwaway joke where they referred to this guy who happened to be played by Tim Burton, and someone says, yeah, he's the next Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, I was trying to think of what movie that was from. <laughs> I kept thinking throughout the whole month-long research process, that line about Scorsese wouldn't leave my mind. Would it be helpful if we all sort of planted our individual flag on where we stand on The Irishman? If we liked it, didn't like it? In the context of it being a Scorsese movie or a movie in general? Go ahead. You start, in fact, Brian. I will. I got some advice, and I think I shared it with both Mark and Erica, to watch The Irishman in four different sittings as a miniseries. And there was a guide on how long you should watch for each one. It even named the four parts. Like, it gave it episode names, which I thought was pretty funny. So the feeling of it being too long was not something I had to suffer. In fact, I was looking forward to the next episode. So treating it as a four-part thing, I did enjoy, I should say I didn't (laughs) resent its length. I wasn't really liking it, but by the time it was over, I had a high appreciation for the movie. I'm not sure I'll ever watch it again. I relish sitting down to other of his movies to watch them multiple times, this likely won't be one of those. I definitely appreciate this movie for what it is. Erica, get us going. For me, I can appreciate also what The Irishman was and the work he put into it and the craftsmanship that he showed. Like He had some really interesting shots. And obviously, he's an amazing director. It's just like his body of work is always enjoyable and interesting. But it's not a story that I cared a lot about. I think that's a problem for me on some of his films. Is the subject matter something I can relate to and feel a kinship for? And I really didn't quite feel that with The Irishman. And I never am going to believe that De Niro is an Irishman. You can give him all the blue eyes you want, but I just, I I wasn't buying it. So I think had I watched it in four parts, I think that actually might have helped me stick with it and appreciate it in different ways a little bit better. I was left feeling like, yeah, it was good, but like, why? So, Colin, you just watched virtually all of them, (laughs) all the Scorsese movies just recently. How did you feel this stacked up? I watched Scorsese's catalog of features, some of his documentaries as well, but not in order. So I actually began my Scorsese rewatch with The Irishman. I started there. And I hadn't seen a Scorsese film, I think, since Silence a few years ago. So Scorsese hadn't been a director at the top of my mind, although I've always enjoyed his films. He's been more of a canonical object, you might say, more of an icon of American auteurhood. So watching The Irishman, 
I was plunged back into many of the themes he's revisited that I would find out or remember that he's revisited over the course of his career. I was talking to a friend about this here, an American friend, was saying I was rewatching all of Scorsese's movies. And he says, why? They're all the same. And for a second, I thought, wait, The Age of Innocence and Kundun are the same, or (laughs) Silence and After Hours are the same, or Who's That Knocking at My Door and uh, Gangs of New York are are the same. I got what he meant, though. Scorsese is associated with a certain milieu culturally, and the Irishman probes that, especially in terms of the era of America. So you have the post-war era through the early 1980s. This is the height of the mob, the height of the Teamsters as well, not coincidentally, the height of a certain kind of cultural presence in the world for America and the height of a certain kind of culture within America as well. And the more Scorsese I watch and rewatch, the more I see why he might be drawn to that period over and over again. It set the stage well for the project I then launched into. I didn't watch all of them, but I watched a good dozen of them in the past few weeks. I enjoyed it. I didn't watch it in one sitting, but I didn't have any kind of the the organized approach that Brian did. It was more the normal. I don't know that I watched most movies in one sitting if I'm just watching it by myself anymore. I'll I'll see a little bit here, a little bit there. But it didn't just hold me to the end like when I was just rewatching Goodfellas. I was glued to that. I did see it in the theater here in Seoul. Did everybody else watch it at home? What was the mood of the room like in the theatrical? Was there an intermission at least? No, no intermission. It didn't feel that long to me. It was coming toward the end of its run in theaters already when I saw it. But it still had a pretty healthy audience. I mean, the theater was more than half full. This was one of the old theaters in downtown Seoul. But I saw it in the middle of the day. It was a matinee. All the kids were packed in. You get that, but also you get this mixture where the young people are pretty good filmgoers. They stay through the credits and everything. The older people in Korea, they'll be answering their phones while the movie's running. It happened three times in the course of The Irishman. Oh, no. So that was, it was a bit disrupted in that sense, but I'm glad I saw it theatrically. It didn't occur to me to sign up for Netflix and watch it that way. But some critics, like Richard Brody in The uh, New Yorker, he said that is the way to watch it. I don't know if he suggested watching it episodically, breaking it up, but he did say Netflix was the way to go. So I, I could believe that as well. Watching it episodically did something really interesting to the movie for me. We're spoiling this movie, I assume. Oh, yes. Everyone just hit pause and go spend three and a half hours and watch this thing and come back. All right, now that that's happened. So at the end of the third episode, which they called What Kind of Fish, is it ends with the, the death of Jimmy Hoffa. So I came back to it later, and we have this long extended sequence of the Irishman's going into his old age and falling apart, growing old in prison and really becoming this decrepit character. And I feel like a younger Martin Scorsese would have just given us everything through the end of episode three. And it's this older Scorsese who gives us this last chapter, these last 40 minutes, where we realize that when he keeps telling us about how all these other people get gunned down in the early 80s or whenever it is that they died, these are the gangsters that gangsters aspire to be, right? They live hard and they die gloriously. And it's this poor bastard that Robert De Niro is playing who really is suffering in a way that people don't suffer in traditional Scorsese movies. And I loved it. I thought that was such a clever way to end a movie that I didn't expect from him. Like The Departed ends with a a death that no one's going to get busted for and it goes out with a bang. His movies often end with a bang of some kind and this was just a glorious whimper and I appreciated it so much. That reminded me though of the ending of Raging Bull. Like when I was watching Raging Bull, I was like, I don't know how I would have ended it, but I don't think I would have ended it the way that he did. 
I don't necessarily need it to grab me, but it's like a coda I didn't need. See, I, d- I disagree that I, I yeah. So this, just Raging Bull for folks who haven't seen it's a biographical picture of a boxer. So a lot of it is how he was the biggest boxer in the world or whatever for a while, and then how his life basically falls apart as he is too old to actually do that anymore and screws up his marriage and things. And so having it end with him basically like doing a nightclub act where he's reading Shakespeare and things and being a really terrible comedian at like little bars with his new very trashy girlfriend, like, yes, that is where he ends up. You didn't find it resonant at all to see at the, at the very end when he's doing the monologue from On the Waterfront, you have this dramatic, almost a vertigo, where it's Robert De Niro doing Jake LaMotta, doing Marlon Brando, doing Terry Malone. And the resonances through all of those phases, it just, it's, that hit pretty hard for me. No pun intended, given the theme of the film, but harder than the actual punches in the main action. Well, to me, that was lost because I did not grow up watching On the Waterfront. And I did read about it afterwards, like, because I wanted to understand what was going on. But yeah, no, it wouldn't have gotten me and didn't because I didn't know those references. I mean, it's a good point to make because Scorsese, I often think of, or I can't think of him any other way, but as a cinephile filmmaker and one of the earliest, most prominent cinephile filmmakers in the United States. Later cinephile filmmakers in America have been Quentin Tarantino about whom you did an episode, I heard it, or uh, Wes Anderson, younger than him, or earlier, Jean-Luc Godard in France. And this generation of filmmakers raised on film, Scorsese, I think, is still the best-known, most-respected example of that. And to end Raging Bull in the way he did, that's perfectly representative of what a cinephile filmmaker would do. Which is interesting, you know, just to contrast it with George Lucas, who is also had so many references and, you know, that's actually what, you know, drives people now to see Kurosawa movies or maybe to see Tarantino's influences is because in both those cases, they're kind of, the references are to more popular, I think, media as opposed to, I keep wanting to say art house, but less crappy source material. Let's put it that way, that he <laughs> was just exposed as a kid, Scorsese apparently to all kinds of movies and just really threw himself into that in a way that it wasn't just what hits the typical, I think so much of nostalgic art is about the things that hit us when we were eight years old or something, which is not going to be Fellini films, you know, unless you just had a weird, weird ass childhood. (laughs) You can really see this in Scorsese's long form, not so much documentary as essay film. It's called A Personal Journey Through American Film. He made it in the early 90s, and it's his history, literally a personal journey through the beginning of American film to when he began his career in the late 1960s. And you see, he really watched everything. He was an asthmatic kid growing up in New York. He could see everything, and the references pop up clearly in his films later. Even to, we talk about art house, we talk about schlock, but when it's a silent film like The Great Train Robbery, and he's working in the gunshot at the end to the end of Goodfellas, where Ray Liotta's character envisions Joe Pesci's character coming to shoot him, there's discrimination is useless. It's just he saw a bunch of material. He saw a lot of film, and now he's using it all. There are places where I do feel that, you know, things that have seeped into him through his childhood as opposed to through his just cinema appreciative brain, which is not particularly immature in the way that nostalgic cinema works. It's a little difficult to disentangle because so much of what he's known for, on the one hand, the area that he specifically grew up in, this Sicilian area of New York, So, so much of that is stuff that is just in his DNA. You know, of course, he didn't know necessarily as an eight-year-old 
how they did there had to be some unearthing to figure out how did they do their collars specifically, you know, so you could have all these exact costume and set and other details right. But certainly the character in Goodfellas, even though that's of course based on a book, where he says as a little as a kid, you know, these made people were around and he they seemed cool. They they could do stuff. That this love for the gangster genre even though it's a, a very ambivalent love, you know, most of them sort of get their just desserts and he's going to be a priest. And so a lot of even the gangster films are sort of meditations on sin. But still, there is some of that childhood glee about the form that comes into some of it, which then is notably absent when you're talking about a film like Silence about 17th century monks being persecuted in Japan. It's true. Scorsese's written about growing up in Little Italy and seeing around him two sources of power. One is the mob, the other is the church. Nothing else. It's not the law. It's not the state. These are the two forces that shaped his world growing up. And you can see his interest in social codes, very important to both the church and to the mob. His interest in codes of honor and the ways power is exercised. You know, that's never going to leave him. So is that part of what, like Erica, you were saying this film didn't connect with you that much? Is it part of it just because, you know, you don't share? I certainly don't share. Like those two things, <laughs> learning more about church thinkers, you know, much less people who, you know, suffer the torments of faith and mafia films are more like, you know, seeing something from a foreign land to me. Yeah, totally. They are. I find it fascinating, but I think I don't connect with it personally. So if we were watching something that was more of a documentary, I'd be like, yeah, okay, I'm learning a lot. And actually the parts... You know, there were definitely parts I really liked about The Irishman. I thought Pacino, I really enjoyed Pacino's character. And then I talked to a friend who was like, didn't like his portray at all. But I don't know if it was just because he was a bit more likable or because we didn't see him do absolutely terrible things. We only saw the people around him do the terrible things. I think part of it was the relationship with the little girl and how she really took a liking to the Hoffa character. And I also found it really interesting to look at American politics through that lens and see how we have like the Republicans and Democrats, and then we had this third force, the mafia. To me, that part was very fascinating, but fascinating in an informational way rather than how I usually like to watch cinema. And in fact, like I just watched Bringing Out the Dead today, and that hit me closer, and I liked that better than I even liked Raging Bull, which it's probably not nearly the film that Raging Bull is. But I think based on what that character was going through, it struck a closer chord with me for those who haven't seen Bringing Out the Dead. I guess it was right before Nicolas Cage's prime, right? Wouldn't we say that his prime was like probably right after that? Hmm, it like, could be. So Nicolas Cage, Patricia Arquette, and he plays an ambulance driver who has had a bad bout of a lot of people dying on him. And he's really trying to deal with how to keep going and how to keep doing his job. And he keeps trying to quit and he keeps trying to get fired and nobody will fire him because they need people who will go out and do these terrible things that nobody else wants to do. And he's just wrestling with what his job even is because he can't even seem to keep people alive. And by the end realizes that maybe it's not just about keeping people alive, it's bearing witness to people's lives and being there when they die so they have somebody there. And that to me was just, I don't know if it was just pointing at this part of my life, but you know, just searching for meaning is really important to me right now. Maybe this is a good question just to ask. What was it outside of, yes, it was a well-made film. What is it that The Irishman did to touch any of you in your hearts or your minds that made you feel like this is a wonderful film that should be up for Oscars and this is what it taught me? What was the story you got out of that? 
I think it does some things to actually push a viewer away from connecting with it a little bit. And, and I think that and that's not really answering your question. Is that effective? I mean, I don't know. Like, what do you think? It's effective for what it's trying to do, which is to give this sheen of being a biopic or have some connection to the truth, right? Because when you tell this longitudinal story, you have characters that come and go. And as a viewer, you're not sure, is this someone I need to pay attention to? Or are they going to come back? Um, if you're telling a straight story, you're more careful about that and you introduce people because they are going to come back or you don't introduce them if they're kind of throwaway. But in The Irishman, someone plays an important part and you have to introduce them and then forget about them because you've moved on. It makes it feel like a documentary in a way, even though of course it's not. But I do think it's harder to connect and you definitely, I mean, I don't feel like I wasn't identifying really all that much with any of the characters. I think that's effective movies will help you identify even with really bad people. I found watching Scorsese's movies all the way, all the way through his, his filmography is his films tend to come in pairs. Not that he made them in pairs one after the other, but they tended to pair well together. And with Bringing Out the Dead, which Erica just mentioned, which is a Scorsese movie that I enjoy quite a bit and has been overlooked, I, I would say. It goes with Taxi Driver. And Taxi Driver, of course, there's an obvious connection. These guys are both drivers of something. I sometimes refer internally to bringing out the dead as Ambulance Driver. And in some ways, <laughs> it feels like a sequel to Taxi Driver because it revives an infernal New York. You'll notice at the beginning of Ambulance Driver of bringing out the dead, there's a title card that says this film takes place in New York in the early 90s. It seems unnecessary. The film came out in 1999. It's not that far back. But Paul Schrader, who wrote that film and who also wrote Taxi Driver needed to just get New York a little bit more infernal so he could push his protagonist through that. And a protagonist who has become his job in a sense. I love this monologue in Taxi Driver, not really a monologue, a conversation between the wizard, Peter Boyle's character, an older cabbie, and Travis Bickle, De Niro's character, who's just become a cabbie. Peter Boyle's character is saying, you know, a man gets a job, he becomes the job. You know, some guys work in an office in Connecticut, some guys work downtown, some guys drive a cab, some guys clean laundry. You do the job, you become the job. I don't own my own cab. I just been doing this. It must be because I want to. Somehow that the speech which is more eloquent in the film is very resonant with me when I watch through Scorsese's films. Up to the Irishman, this is a, a man who has become his job, Frank Sheeran, De Niro's character in The Irishman, and he became that job early. A soldier. We see him shooting prisoners in World War II in Italy. He is forged as a soldier and remains throughout, till his dying day, a soldier. He won't reveal the things that his code of honor says he can't reveal. He follows orders. And the crux of the film is he has conflicting orders. His first loyalty is to the mob. His second loyalty is to Hoffa. He's a soldier for two groups. What's he going to do? And he, he does the predictable action based on the fact that he is thoroughly a soldier and nothing else. And that's what gets him in trouble with his family, especially his daughter does not want her father to be a soldier. He can be nothing else. He is his job. And he became that early. You're making me like it more. I, like <laughs> I do what I can. So I'm surprised, Erica, that you said you enjoyed Raging Bull as much as you did. I mean, I, that's one that I appreciated, but I wouldn't say enjoyed. Yeah. Of course, because of the boxing and the domestic violence, that's more horrifying than the boxing. Yeah, that was a seriously messed up experience, one that I don't think you're supposed to like it. That's not the emotion that it's supposed to elicit. Well, Raging Bull could also become one of a pair with uh, the Irishman. You have these De Niro characters throughout Scorsese's filmography, and usually, with exceptions of a film like Casino, 
They're fairly limited characters, the characters De Niro plays. As I say, in The Irishman, Frank Sheeran is a soldier through and through. He takes orders and he executes orders, executes people if the orders say to execute them. And in Raging Bull, he's even more limited. Much He's almost animalistic. He is physical violence. He can live only. He can navigate the world only, reality only through physical violence. He punches other men for a living. He can only communicate that way. He can only navigate that way. And to put that kind of a character on screen in a cogent way, none of us have known many people like this. And if you open up Jake LaMotta's book, the real book on which Raging Bull is based, it's awful. It's just all this special pleading and self-serving self-justification and the prose is almost incoherent. But De Niro and then Scorsese saw something in this book, saw a character, and Scorsese's films are all driven by some character he wants to realize. They saw a character that you just don't see on screen much, a man who is so limited that he can simply fight. Really, it's, it, Bull is correct. Bull was a, Raging Bull was the real nickname of Jake LaMotta in his boxing career, but the animalistic nature comes through stronger every time I watch that film. I guess that's maybe something to bring up as a general topic here. Of He, of course, issues straight up good guys and bad guys, although it's hard to see For instance, the Joe Pesci character in Goodfellas is anything but just a psychopath bad guy that you'd want to stay away from. But for the most part, he's known for these nuanced portrayals. Are you supposed to? Like, I felt like a real difference between Bringing Out the Dead and Taxi Driver is that in Bringing Out the Dead, you do sympathize with this guy. I mean, he goes a little nutty as it's going on, but he's really kind of an everyman. Does he or is it just Nicolas Cage? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's why this movie is overlooked because Nicolas Cage just acts like Nicolas Cage and whatever, <laughs> like it's notorious for, is he a good actor? I don't know. <laughs> he just acts like himself and it definitely worked for that film and the trippy thing that it was trying to do, which I compare in some ways is to more like after hours in terms of the, what happens in New York nightlife? It's crazy. <laughs> just having bizarre characters. So he and his co-stars, Tom Sizemore and things worked very well in that but still, like, was, you know, a less complicated, but more likable, more relatable character than Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, who is just like, what is wrong with his brain? Like, he was a veteran, but they never really reveal what went on, why he is quite this way, why he has such this nihilism at his core that he just, the whole beginning of the movie is, I'm going to start to be a taxi driver because I just, I can't sleep and I have nothing to do with my time and I want to work long hours. And he doesn't care where in the city he goes. He doesn't have the normal standards that other people has and just is very incapable of relating to anyone. So it's an exploration of this anti-character rather than, you know, anybody you're supposed to identify with at all. Incidentally, I know you did an episode not long ago on the new canon of Christmas films and bringing out the dead to me is one of the most solid entries into the Christmas canon because it is structurally a Christmas carol. The three nights, three ghosts of Christmas, past, present, future. Uh, there's the sense of redemption in the film or attempted redemption. It is the only modern Christmas carol that I found plausible, bringing out the dead. Add it to the list. <laughs> well, if we're going to call that a Christmas movie, then I think I we have to know. add to our, our list of uh, Scorsese movies the uh, episode of Community contemporary American poultry. Has everyone seen that one where they have the chicken fingers mafia going on? It sounds pretty good. It's a solid recommend. I'm going to go double community on this because there's another episode dedicated to whether Nicolas Cage is actually any good or not. Excellent. Yes. Yes. That's definitely what I was channeling there in that question. I've read that in multiple sources. (laughs) 
As far as protagonists go, do we really have a protagonist in The Irishman? I should know this, but I feel like a protagonist is somebody who you root for, right? Greater subject we seem to be talking about here is, as I believe Mark mentioned, Scorsese's use of anti-heroes or lack of heroes in his films in general. And I found it to be a very illuminating view on Scorsese's moral universe to watch his remake of Cape Fear from 1991 with the original from circa 1960, something like that. In the original, it's much more cut and dried. We have a good guy, good family, and a bad guy who's coming to stalk and punish the good guy. And I was reading, I think this might be on the, in the book, Scorsese on Scorsese, one of Faber and Faber's Directors on Directors uh, interview compilations. Scorsese says something like, Steven Spielberg wanted to do the Cape Fear remake before I got to it or before Robert De Niro gave it to me. Spielberg, though, we can all imagine it would have been a very different film. Scorsese says, you know, Spielberg does this movie. The Nick Nolte character is going to be a good, upstanding family man. You're going to see them, him and the family, singing around the piano because Spielberg believes in that. I don't. You know, Scorsese makes the lawyer character, the father, the Nick Nolte character in his remake, he makes him into not necessarily a sleaze, but, you know, he's had affairs, he's starting on another one, he doesn't really stand for anything, he doesn't abide by a code, he has no honor. Max Cady, the Robert De Niro ex-convict, is the embodiment of a code. In prison, he has formed himself into, as he says, something more than human. I used to be less than human, now I'm more. I learned to read. I can outsmart you. I can out-philosophize you. His word, philosophize. I am better than you. He's crafted himself into an adherent to his own code with a mission, with a goal, and he is driven in a way the Nolte character is not. And you can feel how there's no heroes in this film, and the moral ambiguity is dense. I mean, the teenage daughter of this family being stalked, played by Juliette Lewis, her attraction to Max Cady, this criminal, is itself extremely Scorsesean. But the lack of heroes, but also the sort of, as a modern viewer, you can feel your own lack of a code when you watch a film like Cape Fear, or when you watch a film like The Irishman. You might not admire the De Niro characters in these movies, but you know, these are characters who can kill. They have something they would kill for. I am not violent. I also know that if it comes down to it, I don't know that I have something I would kill for. I, well, I, after I watched The Irishman, I happened to read this article on Richard Ford, the novelist, and about his wilder, younger days, how he was talking to or corresponding with Raymond Carver. Raymond Carver's daughter had a bad boyfriend. Carver didn't like the boyfriend, wanted him gone. So Richard Ford says, okay, no problem. I'll hop on a greyhound. I'll kill the guy. I'll get rid of his body. Done. No problem. He didn't take him up on the offer. Carver didn't. But the article emphasized Richard Ford has things he would kill for. This separates him from most moderns. I mean, he's part of this Mississippian honor culture, and honor culture being a huge theme of many Scorsese films. But you feel the distance. Scorsese makes you feel the distance. Him and me are completely different. He might be a villain. He might not be admirable. But he has things he would kill for. He has a code. He adheres to honor. And deep in my heart, I know I don't. Oh, yeah, there's a simplicity to those characters in that way, right? And a drive. Yeah. I think it's beautifully done in Gangs of New York, but Gangs of New York being a little bit different just because it's a cultural war. I guess you could make that case for other things too, but in the context of history, it, it feels different to me. It's true, and I watched that just last night, and Scorsese's interest in subcultures of any kind comes through very clearly in Gangs of New York. And I haven't seen all of his movies, but when I think of when he's really given us a hero that is unambiguously the good guy, and what comes to mind is The Departed, he gives us an anti-hero or the, an antagonist who we really are forced to invest in just as much, 
right? He humanizes the mole in the police academy or, or who, who goes into the police uh, department to the point where we really are almost schizophrenic and, and not knowing who exactly we're supposed to be pulling for in that movie. It's a clever thing that, that he does. Erica to, I only knew half of protagonists, so I looked it up. Protos, Greek meaning first I had, it's agonistes is actor. So the actor who is first in importance. So I, I think other than a true ensemble piece, every dramatic story is going to have at least one. Now, whether we are meant to connect with that person or find them repulsive or somewhere in between or all these things, who knows? But I would say that the Frank Sheeran character would be the protagonist. So I guess I'm, I'm confusing protagonist with hero. And then, of course, in The Last Temptation of Christ, the hero is the snake. I didn't rewatch that one, so I, I don't have any clear memories of that. I've listened to the soundtrack a lot. That is one of my favorite albums, like, from when it came out. So so you're right. It's just a leading character, right? But it doesn't specifically say that a protagonist is a good guy, right? Like a hero would be. But if you look at what I would think of would be the opposite, the antagonist is a person who actively opposes or is hostile to someone or something. So I guess the antagonist is just opposes the protagonist doesn't necessarily mean that the protagonist is a good guy. Prototypically, good guy and protagonist go together so that when we have an anti-hero, like, are you going to call Hank Schrader in Breaking Bad, even though he's the main antagonist for at least part of, you know, to Walter White? You're not going to call him an antagonist. Like, no. The good cop who is trying to sniff out the bad protagonist we're not going to consider them the antagonist. Of course, there's plenty in that particular story of other much worse characters that we can put in that category. So Colin brought up honor culture. So yeah, this is another thing that I feel like is very common in older works. And I recall, you know, reading, I can't remember exactly what short stories like in middle school and feeling like the whole moral of this is that honor culture is stupid. Like, <laughs> Like, that's what I got out of a lot of classic literature. I'm so glad we're beyond that. But, Colin, you seem to be implying that it makes us feel ambivalent about it. That, like, yeah, there actually is something admirable that we don't have, that we are spineless compared to these honor culture characters. But on the other hand, no, you don't want to live by that code, at least. Yeah, you don't want to live by that code, although it's I have the same memories as you. You know, you grow up in school reading classic works of literature, and all you're told is you should be lucky you don't live in these benighted older times, even if it's only like 50, 60 years ago. You know, thank God we live in the 1990s, right? Well, okay, but, you know, it's, hold on. I think Scorsese's films are not necessarily advocating for a return to honor codes, but in a sense, they do illustrate the idea that they don't go away. These qualities of the human experience are not suppressible. His characters, I'd like to think of them as, I'll put it this way, John Woo, a while ago, he was asked why he makes so many, so many films about uh, cops and criminals. He says, because they're the last men of action. You can't find any others to tell stories about. Scorsese could potentially say something similar. I, I like a phrase that pops up in Shutter Island, came out about 10 years ago. Men of violence, these federal marshals you see at the beginning of the film, they're referred to as men of violence. Scorsese tells stories in his films about men of violence. And increasingly, you get the sense from his films that they are an endangered species. And I thought to myself, watching The Irishman, this story could not have been told in another era. It had to be the post-war years up to the 1980s. This was the last time that the man of violence really had cultural weight. You don't see the man of violence occupying any sort of relevant place in U.S. culture today, do you? Not in the sense that Scorsese shows them. 
I feel like it gets political, right? When we talk about the gun culture, I feel, I feel like there still is, I mean, there are a ton of mass shootings and things like that. That's the America Scorsese does not deal with. The America of mass shootings, it's not in his movies, from what I can tell, or there's no, right. there's no reference to that world, that world of violence that exists now. Maybe it's because it's not... And organized, I guess you couldn't really call right. the NRA that because it's, it's different. But I mean, he could, if he wanted to, I suppose, write a film or have a film about the CD underbelly of certain parts of the NRA or certain parts of our government. I wonder, does Travis Bickle have anything in common with our current conception of a mass shooter? I think definitely. I, I was feeling like that has a lot of resonance you know, for the sort of incel mindset today. Like, that is setting up a character that would be extremely recognizable. Speaking of incels, I, I did watch uh, Todd Phillips's film, Joker, after seeing The King of Comedy, because I'd heard there had been so many references to not just The King of Comedy, but Taxi Driver in Joker. And you do get the sense, yes, that is a treatment of this subject that is extremely, extremely 2010s. And it throws into relief the 70s aspects of Taxi Driver. I mean, I go back to the infernal New York. I was so entertained to see, I watched the King of Comedy and saw the real porn theater filled Times Square. And then the next day, Joker, the recreation of the infernal New York of the 80s porn theater filled Times Square. It's fascinating to watch, I guess you could say, to watch us lose touch with that world. I mean, in The Irishman, it's made not a big deal, but it's made a point of, De Niro says in narration, nobody knows Jimmy Hoffa anymore. This was one of the most important figures in American culture. And very shortly after his death, he became nothing more than a shorthand for a public figure who was disappeared by the mafia, probably. And that shift from one America to the next, clearly Scorsese is still working with it. But we might not have touched on this, but every principal character, every principal actor and the director of The Irishman, they're all over 75 years old. Something is going to pass out of living memory. And you can sense a concern with that in this film, and I'm sure there will be in the next film that Scorsese is already making with De Niro and with Leonardo DiCaprio, his sort of next-generation De Niro. I like your reference to the 2010s. You guys remember that? That was awesome. (laughs) The mists of history. (laughs) It really is sort of interesting and telling of Scorsese's mindset that he used CGI to unage old people because it was more important for him to have authentic oldsters in this movie than start with younger actors that he could age up. Well, it got me thinking, could younger actors have done this? Would a younger director have even considered making this movie? Could it have come across at all with 40-year-olds rather than 75-year-olds? I'm not sure a younger director would have told the story. It's hard to imagine that. That's part of what I am saying with this idea that the oldness of it is so important to Scorsese, it seems to me. You don't think he just wanted to make a movie with people that he liked making movies with, that he'd done that for a long time with? I think it's part of it, but he even mentions, you know, he talks about not wanting to, what's the point of getting multiple actors? Like, directors do that all the time. Like, that's a tradition in movies to have characters played by different people, but that wasn't his interest. I mean, I think of Dustin Hoffman aged up for Little Big Man, and people thought it was real effective at the time. That age makeup didn't age well. No, it doesn't. And Scorsese has a tradition in his own work of having actors play somewhat implausible ages of their own characters. Think back to Goodfellas. Ray Liotta is playing Henry Hill at age 21. He's obviously not 21 years old, but we go with it. We just get into the Scorsese historical sweep mindset, and we let it slide. 
or you find actors who like Angela Lansbury, not referring to a Scorsese movie who has looked 70 since she was 30. <laughs> Indeed. I remember watching Murder, She Wrote in Childhood. She was already clearly 70, but she's remained 70. <laughs> I didn't have clearly in mind what the actors looked like now. So I didn't read any of this stuff about the aging back makeup until afterward. And so I just didn't notice it at the time. I don't know what I was thinking, but I certainly didn't realize that Joe Pesci actually looks like, I assume they still used age makeup to make him look a little older in his oldest scenes, right? That, But when I saw an interview with him, like he pretty much looks like that. Something Anthony Lane in The New Yorker pointed out, I thought the de-aging technology, as they call it, would have been more distracting than it was. But it's not the faces. It's that they don't move quite right. When Robert De Niro, there's a scene where he's throwing away a gun he used to shoot a guy. And he goes up, he walks up on the rocks, and he looks so tentative. His motions are not the motions of a young man, though his face is the face of a 40-year-old. You can tell he's not steady. He's not as steady as a 40-year-old would be. But because his face is young, there is an uncanniness and a kind of poignancy when you really think about it, that I've never seen in any other film because no other film has done this extent of de-aging. No other other film has taken that kind of a risk. Or Will Smith and Gemini Man. He doesn't have that old. (laughs) I admit I haven't seen Gemini Man. But looking at, I mean, I've seen the footage and I was digging around on, on YouTube. He's not that old now, right? It's not quite that big a difference. I didn't think the CGI was all that good. I thought the lips looked weird. I thought his blue eyes, he almost looked like he was out of Dune with the Fremen with the glowing eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. Or Rachel from Blade Runner in The Crown. Uh, for season three, they got an actress, Olivia Coleman. She doesn't have blue eyes. And they tried to give her contacts and she couldn't act with them. And they told her, oh, we're just going to make them blue in post-production. And that messed her up, but she still couldn't do it. So they just gave the queen brown eyes. And it's fine. And did people go crazy? No, she won awards, right? (laughs) That's right. How else would we have known De Niro was supposed to be Irish if he had brown eyes? That'd be impossible. Be lost on all of us. I just can't wait to see them attempt to do a young Luke Skywalker with with Mark Hamill's creaky voice. (laughs) You know, this reminds me of, do you you remember about not quite 10 years ago at Coachella, there was a revival of Tupac with a hologram where there was a Snoop Dogg concert and they brought Tupac literally the image of Tupac as a hologram up on stage and had it perform. And there was all this talk about how, well, now there's going to be holographic concerts of the Beatles and we're going to bring Keith Moon back. And we, you know, but it, nothing came of it. And I, I wonder if this talk about anti-aging becoming the next trend in film the next way films are going to be, the next technique that defines an era of film is very much the holographic Tupac, right? It's the next 3D television. Ah, yes. Yeah, it'll be here and then we're going to hate it and it's going to go away. I would think it'd be more likely that we'll have, you still find a child version of the adult actor, but you mess with the child actor's face so they look way more like the adult actor than they actually do. (laughs) I could see that being becoming a common thing. Or the next is like, taking the DNA of somebody and then just creating new Robert De Niro's. So you can have Robert Cloning De Niro, De Niro? every age. The sort of boys yes. from Brazil type situation? Okay. There we go. Speaking of that, I also watched the pilot for Vinyl, the TV show that Scorsese had kicked off recently, which apparently didn't get that great reviews overall and was not renewed. It was only in 2016, but it was co-created with Mick Jagger and has Mick Jagger's son. I think it's his son, another Kim one Jagger as one of the, yes, who is, you know, of course, just uncanny. What's wrong with the show? Why do you think it didn't have legs, as they say? 
I didn't see enough of it. I assume that it probably got worse. But, you know, it is interesting to kind of think about the difference between clearly The Irishman was meant to be a film. It was only because the studio wouldn't pay for it then that it moved to Netflix. Whereas this HBO thing was purposefully HBO, presumably lower budget. In other words, HBO pre Game of Thrones last season, pre Watchmen, pre the idea that you can put so much money into a TV show that it's basically a film. Yeah. So there might have been something. There's still quite a lot of crowd scenes and things. I, I don't know. It seemed there was something different about the feel of it, even though it was a, a Scorsese direction, but it did. So I don't know if it was, it, it was a psychological thing that like, because I know I'm watching the pilot of an HBO show, it just somehow feels slightly more cheap, slightly more like a regular TV show than like everything else that he's ever done or whether it actually was done for a quarter of the budget. And somehow that does show up on screen. I take it the show has something to do with music? Yes, actually, this is a great topic that we need to at least mention here, is how central music, and in particular, mostly not scored music, right, is the songs of his youth. It's not just the the environment he grew up in, but the songs that he listened to growing up. And so every time a Rolling Stones song, or even earlier R&B sort of stuff can be stuffed in there, it will be. That is a point where... It doesn't feel as art house, right? That we're talking about Zack Snyder's version of Watchmen where he did some things that are basically music videos. And strangely enough, someone at a a much more artsy place in the spectrum, Scorsese, does the same thing, has these long scenes that like, oh, this was written to go with a Clash song and there it is. It's easy to forget how revelatory this was when Scorsese started doing it in the late 60s, early 70s with Who's That Knocking on My Door, More So Mean Streets. He's written himself. He had no idea you could just use songs, songs that you knew, songs that played in a certain era, that you could just put them in the movie to him. And he, this is the most serious film-going young person you can imagine in the 60s. He had no idea there could just be songs in movies, not a score, not movie music, but just songs. We're so, we were all born into the era when this was already established practice, but putting actual songs in movies, in Scorsese's mind, this is still a sort of punk thing to be doing. Yeah, so the, you know, and I know he's done a lot of music documentaries and the, the Last Waltz, the band Bob Dylan and a Rolling Stones concert. George Harrison. And- Yes, so this is definitely a major, you know, at least side interest. So vinyl was the first place I explicitly saw, unless I'm just not remembering something in one of those past movies where it, you know, it's about a record executive and he's discovering bands and there's a fictionalized, that you know, actors playing Led Zeppelin in it and the climax of this opening episode was watching the New York Dolls on stage, you know, so this band sort of recreated, recreating something in music history that he was very excited about. So I don't know exactly why it did not succeed. One thing I'll mention, Mark, is he only directed one episode. Right. And maybe when you give a Scorsese-created world to different directors, you just lose the magic. It's hard to know. It's neat that you say that he was being punk by using popular music. And I think that does remind us that he isn't somebody who's... I don't think that Scorsese made The Irishman to win Oscars, but I think it's the type of movie that is made usually to win Oscars. I just think that he likes making those kinds of movies. Like he likes putting the music that he enjoys and just, you know, having those in his scores. And I don't think he makes a three hour film to make people say, look at how great his epic film is. I think he puts it in there because he finds it necessary to make it three hours long. And he doesn't care if people want it to be shorter. And that's something I really respect about him and all of the work that I've seen. Yeah, some of it may not speak to me on a personal level, but that doesn't mean that I don't 
find him completely fascinating and somebody, you know, to look up to as an artist because he clearly has a vision that he cares very much about. The actors he work with, works with seem to love him for good reason. And, you know, he does his homework and he brings a wonderful product to life, whether or not it's your style or not. It's his. Yeah, and you're getting to something essential about Scorsese as a figure in cinema. There was a whole kerfuffle, as they call it now, a few months ago about his comments about Marvel films, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it was widely taken, at least from what I can tell on Twitter, his comments were widely taken to be him trashing superhero movies. But if you look at what he said in his subsequent editorial in the New York Times, and more so Richard Brody in The New Yorker elucidating that editorial, doing a sort of exegesis on it, you see that Scorsese is not against superhero films. In many ways, The Last Temptation of Christ is a superhero origin story to its core. And I say that I'm not religious, but it's uh, maybe only the non-religious could think that about that movie. I don't know. But he doesn't seem to me in his words to express any contempt for superhero movies, but for franchise films, films made to serve an entity like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or to serve Star Wars rather than to serve the vision of an individual. He keeps coming back in his writing, Scorsese, as he does to this, the individual artist, the individual auteur. It's not a word he uses often, auteur, but it's clearly what he's after, whether it's been in his film viewing from the very beginning or in his filmmaking. There needs to be a guiding intelligence, a single guiding intelligence behind a movie to be cinema to his mind. And I think even the most ardent defenders of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or of Star Wars will say there is not a single guiding intelligence. It's something else is being served. To Scorsese, that is not cinema. I'm not going to read his mind, but I don't think he cares one way or the other about superheroes, not even to trash them. So it's funny that he is, the way you were just referring to it, Brian, that in the Scorsese-verse, that he is a franchise unto himself. You know, that was... Yeah, he's his own brand. But Mark, you asked a question of us before the podcast to say, what does it mean to be a fan of Martin Scorsese or a fan of his movies? And as we've discussed, they, they really are so varied and even though there are threads that run throughout, there's not one kind of thing. And, you know, all I would say to that is, I know there's this high potential that I'm going to enjoy it, or it's going to be thought provoking. I'm not sure what I'm going to get, but, you know, I have a real good shot of walking away, having experienced something interesting, valuable, glad I did it. It's so different from being a Tarantino fan or a J.J. Abrams fan, or where they are such a kind of thing. But other directors, you kind of know that you, it's going to be a, a tough road. You know, it's a Brad Ratner movie. All right, well, here we go. No one's making you watch a Brett Ratner movie. <laughs> well, you don't know his wife. Oh my! I don't. I don't either. Can of worms have opened. She's there. probably lovely. <laughs> what do you know, Erica? <laughs> so I think the big thing I got out of this and watching a bunch of them, you know, in light of the Marvel comments, were like, what is his alternative? Like, what is this forgotten? kind of cinema. And I think, you know, the reason that most of his movies are three hours long is that they're basically novels. You know, a lot of them explicitly were novels or, or memoirs or whatever that are, are moved to the screen. And so they're trying to tell a longer term story in a way that a superhero movie just doesn't try to do. Those are just more episodic. Usually what artsy movies come down to is a lot of patience. <laughs> Right? As we talked about this even for Tarantino. What would you describe as an artsy movie? Do you have some examples of what falls squarely into the artsy camp for you, Scorsese or otherwise? Um, 
who's the director that did Down by Law? Uh, oh, Jim Jarmusch. He's a favorite Jim of Jim Jarmusch. Things. Yes. So he's another one where there are sort of pop elements about what he does. But I would think that the defining <laughs> trait of his movies is that you need patience to watch them, that they take their time. There's a lot of soaking in the atmosphere. And so you do get that in Taxi Driver. And I think in Mean Streets as well, but for the most part, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, Gangs of New York, even the Irishmen, like, no, it's because there's a lot of story to tell and we're just going to do it in actually a rather efficient way. Scorsese made a telling comment about Jarmusch to drop this in here. He said, uh, I think this was in Scorsese on Scorsese. You know, a guy like Jarmusch, he says, I don't want to move the camera too much. I don't want to use close-ups too much because I, I don't want to tell the audience what to look at. That's Jarmusch in Scorsese's view. Scorsese says, I'm not like that. I want the camera to move. I want to show the audience exactly what I want them to see. I want them to see like I see. And if you watch his movies, see, watch where the camera goes. It's very deliberately taking you on certain paths, pointing you toward what to watch. Jarmusch doesn't. Maybe I'm more attracted to the Jarmusch aesthetic than Scorsese's, but I couldn't appreciate more that Scorsese wants me to see like he sees. So as a final topic, can we just quickly go around and say what your favorite thing from his catalog is to sort of w- what kind of person you are? Erica, do you want to start us? Boy, that's a hard one. And I'm split between one that's very violent and one that's not at all. I absolutely adored Hugo, but Gangs of New York, I really like Gangs of New York and it's not a perfect film, but I get something out of it every time I watch it. Ryan. Oh, this is actually a really easy one. So maybe you have trouble buying De Niro as a as an Irishman. I have no trouble buying him as a fellow Jew. So I'm all in with Casino. I love the constant narration of that movie and the structure. And I come back to it again and again. Really my favorite. All right. Well, I'm glad you didn't pick mine because I'm going to say The Departed because that's The, the Departed. Oh, I changed my mind. <laughs> that, actually has, that actually has such a strong plot and rising tension in a way that I don't feel like any of the others really do. Colin? Well, we have four different ones. And I gave this a little bit of thought thinking you might ask this question. For me, it's the king of comedy. And it's aesthetically not representative of Scorsese's films. The camera doesn't move that much. It's, he said himself, he looked back to early silent films as a way to figure out the staging of the king of comedy. But I keep coming back to it. It captures something that few films do, including few Scorsese films, maybe no other Scorsese films. Uh, it came out in, I believe, 1982, The King of Comedy. And before that, a couple of years before, there was a book called Within the Context of No Context by a writer named George W.S. Tro, adapted from a New Yorker piece. He was, I think, on the staff at the New Yorker for a long time. And this long article turned book by George W.S. Tro is about, among other things, the grids of American life. He says, Right now, writing in 1980, there are two grids of American life. The grid of 200 million, the population of the U.S. of A. at the time, and the grid of the individual. And every other grid in the middle, all the other sort of forms of community have dropped away. Only these two grids exist with a vast distance between them. Only celebrities are allowed access to both grids. Only celebrities in America have a full existence, are full human beings living on both of those grids, the popular grid and the grid of the individual. And the king of comedy, to me, though Scorsese's never said anything like this, dramatizes very clearly and very compellingly a man trying to escape the grid of the individual, living in his mom's basement, trying to imitate the comics he sees on TV, idolizing a late night talk show host, trying to by force 
bring himself from the grid of the individual to the grid of 200 million, with consequences that are both funny and troubling, and that play out in both the main character's head and in the film's reality. It allows for multiple interpretations. The King of Comedy is, is richer than most films, and I think, I hope, that Joker and its references to the King of Comedy will send people back to uh, the quote-unquote original. For good or for ill, I think it's a, a film worth revisiting now especially. All right. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Colin, you were great. Thanks for joining us. That was great. So long. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.